Hey everybody, this is Kyle Samsing back with another episode of the Journeyman Fire Podcast. Uh, today it's going to be me, uh, Andrew Zisk, Grant Schwalbe, and joining us will be Aaron Fields from Seattle Fire Department. Most of you guys and girls probably know Aaron Fields from his teaching throughout the country with Nozzle Forward. Let uh, Aaron introduce himself, give a little bit of background on who he is, where he's from, and uh, what he's got going on right now. So Aaron, go ahead and introduce yourself to the fine people. Um, yeah, my name is Aaron Fields. Um... January uh, will be 18 career for me, so I've been in a little while. Um, I work for Seattle Fire, uh, pretty much in the same geographic area that I was raised in. Uh, I actually took my my dad's spot on his engine when he went to the fire marshals. Um, I worked for another fire department prior to Seattle, and I uh, about, I got kind of the shit kicked out of me frankly and a real early fire and decided that what i'd been shown wasn't enough and so i started traveling in 2001 and taking classes from people all around the country that were kind of the leaders in engine work and coming home and working on their material and and following bibliographies, reading, you know, physics and uh, chemistry and, and all the stuff that contributes. And over the course of time, just kept twisting and tweaking and altering their methodologies and, and kind of stripped it down to kind of a, a few base core movements and ways to think about things and and built out from there. And so you know, I think a lot of times when people hear about my program, they before they've ever taken it, because I cite all my sources, as, as you all know, uh, they think that I'm trying to say that I'm doing something new when in fact <clears throat> that's that's impossible. Leverage is only gained in so many ways. And so all I'm doing is building on what my mentors gave me and twisting and tweaking and altering it and bringing what I came to the fire service with into the, you know, using that lens to, to filter through the material. Um, and I think the reason it's been successful is uh, one, I never intended to instruct. So it's not uh, something that I was striving for. It was plopped in my lap and two uh, it's systematic instead of a storyline. And uh, and because of that, it's applicable or, or, or wherever you're at, and it's it's up to the firefighters themselves to pick the pieces of the components that that work and stick them in in, in a way to and and it's systematic. So that's uh that's what we're doing, and um, you know we're just plugging along. So Aaron, um, how long have you been doing nozzle forward now? Um, and, uh, about 11 years. Okay. What was your, uh, any classes stick out to you? I know for, for me and Zisk, uh, the, the Fairfax, I think we, a lot of people call it the, the snowzle forward or the snow nozzle forward, uh, probably about five <laughs> years ago now, um, sticks out. And it, we, we look back and a lot of the guys we meet teaching and, and talking and it, just everybody that's into the job, we can meet at least one person that we know or met in that class or there's a, a degree of separation between one person in that class. And that seems to kind of have been 
one of the more memorable classes out there. Uh, what are some memorable classes that, that, that you've done or things you've learned from some of the students? Oh, well, um, you know, the memorable classes, that one was memorable. That was the second time in my life I've had hypothermia. Um, <laughs> if you remember, we were going to visit Grant after that. And the, the weather was supposed to be fifties, uh, sixties, and that's what I had brought and clo- brought clothes for. So that one was memorable because uh, it was the second time I've been hypothermic uh, in in my life. Uh, and the, the first time was probably more severe and less likelihood of survival because of where I was. But th- that one was that was cold, uh, and. So that one stands out, but you know, there really what stands out to me uh, isn't the environmental phenomena. It is uh, the stuff that I learn and the the classes where somebody that I'm dealing with says something or does something that keys me to a new way to look at an old theme. So my, my, my memorable moments are when, you know, when, for example, when you're moving hose, uh, I remember when Lujan and I were for the first time able to verbalize articulately what was in our brains. Instead of saying, do this here and here, actually having a way to go, this is where you move hose from, this is where you move it to. And though you know, when I started doing this 11 years ago, it was the same place. Um, at, at that point, that the, somebody did something, and for whatever reason, what they did and what they said afterwards was the trigger um, for me to be able to go, oh, shit, this is what it is. It's this and this. So for me, that's really the, the, um, the classes that stand out. I mean, obviously the large ones are the ones that they have a snowstorm or something like that. Or when we were in, you know, Hanover and we had 200 plus, um, those things are there, but you know, there's also other ones I was teaching in Wasilla, um, right outside Wasilla, Alaska. And there was 18 members. This was early on. And there was 18 people that were going through. And I just remember, um, you know, there wasn't a single one of them that had cr- ever crossfitted or done it. You know, these guys were doing an evolution. The mean age was 48. They were doing an evolution and they were coming out. And by the end of the class, I mean, you guys know we do reps. There's no shortage of reps. And they'd come out and they'd literally stand there and suck down a cigarette and then, all right, let's do it again and do, do it again. So, and they never quit. You know, whereas I've seen plenty of people that have only had almonds and wheatgrass in the last six years, fucking like, oh, that's it. I can't do anymore. So (laughs) it's a question. (laughs) So those moments stand out, too, where you're like, golly, they are just killing it. So um, into the second part of your question, uh, there isn't a class that goes by. So. I think a lot of times when people take the program, they realize that it is not scripted that it is um, known points and it's more like an outline and the order of events has to remain constant, but different regions have different strengths and weaknesses. 
And now that I've been pretty much in every region in the country, more or less, um, I know what they are, not from memory, from notes. So there's also been times when we're teaching a class that are people like, oh, shit, you're not going to go get a beer. Nope, I'm not. I'm going to go get something to eat. I'm going to write down what I did today, every day. We did 42 classes last year, every night. We sit down and we talk about it, or I write stuff down, and then that goes into the data bank, and and then I go to sleep. <clears throat> so uh, you know, sometimes I get accused of being antisocial, but my job isn't to be um, uh, to tell war stories over beers. It's it's to present the material in the cleanest, most effective way possible, and the only way you do that is through um, continual critique of yourself. So in order to do that, you have to take notes. You can't because you're only going to focus on those things that are important to you. But if somebody said something, so two days from now, you're going to remember the things that you're prone to remembering because of your lenses. But right now, if somebody goes, hey, when you said this, it really made it clear and it's in the middle of flow and okay, great. And then you move on. Well, right after you're done, that's when everything's the most fresh. So. Uh, that's every class, every class. Uh, the learning thing is a two-way street. And I think one of the major problems in the American fire service <laughs> is, is that most people doing instruction don't know how to instruct, frankly, <clears throat> or the model isn't right. And you know, there was the a pivotal, uh, there was a pivotal ahead, point sorry. a couple of years ago when I met you at FDIC and in a matter of an hour, <laughs> There were two, exactly what you're talking about. I talked with one instructor and said, "Hey, how's setup go and everything?" Like, ah, we're gonna wing it. We're gonna, we're gonna, you know, good, do some good drills. We'll see what the place has. And I came inside and I talked with a few in the lobby, and it sticks out so clear that we talked for an hour and a half. And your planning and your reasoning and your methodology on everything you do is so calculated. And you told me the story about going back and writing everything down from every region. And, uh, you know, I think um, you really inspire me as an instructor and the way you put stuff together. So when I start looking, we just got done teaching some new hires skills. And I think what mm -hmm. frustrated me was not knowing how you put engine ops together in the rule of threes and making it really simple. And then I look at all the skills we're missing across the board and the struggle is how to implement. Do you have a, I know you've dialed an engine, but do you have a system now that you can say, I'm not teaching forcible entry, but if I were to teach forcible entry to my crew, I'd do it in this format that you can apply oh, across the board. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's one of the things, um, you know, when I mentioned early in the introduction, things that I bring, that's one of those things. I mean, I, I have a history for over 25 years in skill acquisition for high for performance-based time compression, acute stress environment. And, uh, and then not at some chump level, not, not like your dad's coaching your football team. Like I was fortunate enough to be in an, a position where I was working with some of the best coaches in this particular sport in the world for extended periods of time. And though I am no, by no means a world-class athlete, 
and was really just fodder for these guys that were, uh, I learned a lot. And they were really cool because they told me what their sources were and how they their national sport had tied in with their military 60 years ago and have been so I went on the when I got back I went on the paper trail uh and and started studying and then had an opportunity consistently to be involved with coaching and and playing and then eventually no longer playing because of age and desire and just recreation you know playing with but not competing and then um coaching so when I came into the fire service uh, I was dumbfounded by the lack thereof uh, that that something that operates in this arena could be so cavalier and non-consistent and ignore for the most part. Now there's, there's pockets that don't, but for the most part, ignore a, over a hundred years in progression through how to teach people to do shit. So yes, I, I absolutely do. And you know, the only other, I, Grant, I mean, you and I, I mean, you know this because you and I have talked about it and, uh, before, but I believe that my sentence or my paragraph for the fire service involves perspective and ability with engine company. But the second and the final sentence is drill methodology. And how you go about constructing drills and how your training should break down from five minute up to academy models, up to ongoing. And, you know, the other thing is, is this isn't an opinion. These are facts and, and it's based off material that has been validated. And I've got the numbers uh, to validate the alterations I've made and why, uh, you know, as far as, you know, there's 20,000, conservatively, we've done 20,000 firefighters in 11 years. And so, you know, and the, and the reflection on that, and I think one of the coolest compliments, and I just got it, it was a guy from a guy that works um, in, in more or less the Western side of the U.S. And he took the class when he was a volunteer, and I think he took the second class I ever taught. And then he took one a few years ago. And then he's, his agency is doing this stuff. So he's one of their in-service trainers and he's since moved on. And one of the things that he commented to me on was, it's really cool to see the growth. And this is a huge, huge compliment uh, because the, what you were doing then, you're still doing now, but the drills are more specific. They're more articulate. They're more purposeful. And the, and the building component of the construction of the algorithm and the skill trees is more um, specific and articulate. And he's like, it is definitely the same class, but it's continually changing and getting better. And so I think, you know, and an and answer to the question is, is, yes, I do have that. And I've been con- the last three years as people have noticed that there is a method to the madness and that I can what what happens after the course of 22 to 22 hours in a two-day version and 32 hours in a three-day version um <clears throat> what where people can end up and 
again, it's not mine. It's my working through other people's mechanics. And I think, so for the last three or four years, I've been doing consulting, uh, sometimes openly and sometimes closed, where somebody will host a class and then keep us for another day or two. And we'll go through, uh, the, for lack of a better term, it's, I call it drilling for function. But it, and, and I'll do a, a drilling for function lecture here or there, but they're usually an hour or three, which isn't enough time to actually give, it's, it's an overview, right? But we've been doing some consulting with that. So I think my final sentence for me, um, because I don't believe that people should be just teaching. I think they should be sharing specific subjects diverse enough to really teach any subject. That's just ridiculous. No other method, no other group in the world that's performance-based does that. You don't have the awesome logistics guy teaching sniping <clears throat> because he's an awesome logistics guy and vice versa. So I think my final sentence is actually um, training methodologies. Like, and, and we're in the process of, of writing it down and, and formalizing it. And I'm, um, I'm, I'm working on some stuff that's not only within the fire service, but outside of the fire service for, for these kinds of things. And I think it starts with the whole premise, the whole outline starts with you ain't finished. Keep, you know, and if it's the same thing today that it was 10 years ago, then you, you're, you're done because growth is an ongoing, consistent thing. And there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, what I was doing is this. I'm no longer doing that anymore. This is why. That's honest. Uh, and it's, uh, it means that you're open to new perspective and, and things like that yourself. And if you're, found, if you're fundamentally sound, then the alterations will be more in methodology and in verbiage and less in technique and tactic. So, yeah, it starts with that. But the simple answer is absolutely. Um, no matter what skill you're doing, the environment that it's meant to be done in, and whether it's a cognitive or a psychomotor skill, it doesn't matter what the skill is. And we operate in an area that's it's fairly specific. You have high stress, you have acute stress, which is a physiological response to perceived chaos and physical trauma. You have an algorithm, and that's how people make decisions. Uh, it, today, the fancy word is recognition prime decision making. It used to be the OODA loop um, because somebody else wrote a new paper, but it's the, it's the, it's the same thing. Um, and new ways to refer to, you really don't make super good decisions under high stress unless you've made the decision before. And what happens to your body physiologically, I mean, uh, in those environments. And, and I mean, I, a great example is someone was telling me about all this, this that I was critiquing what I do and saying that, uh, you know, a, a Marine knows his rifle. <laughs> the most used rifle in the world is the AK-47. And they were, they were making the argument that, um, you know, your nozzle can do five or six different things. And it's okay because you're going to, once you get really good, you'll be able to, 
that that's that doesn't follow a single methodology employed by anybody that performs these kinds of skills like anyone else in the world, unless you're super person, and if that's the case. So they, they were actually making the argument against themselves without realizing it, you know, and, and what the fire service doesn't do is it does not include the human part. And if you really follow the bibliography on our instructive material, which is typically in most places in the country, you know, IFSTA or IFSAC or, and it's instructor one and instructor two. If you look at that document and you read through it, which I have, and you've, you've done, you do the bibliography search, you'll recognize that the vast majority of that material is not designed for psychomotor skill. It's half understood, compiled from various sources, sometimes breaking things. They break at one point, uh, they talk about they're breaking two different teaching models right down the seam. So they're, they're using stuff that is really closely related to the Dreyfus model, and they're coupling it with an, another model that, off the top of my head, I can't remember what it was, but it, 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 was, it just stands out in my mind that like you're breaking it in a place where there is no dovetail. And, you know, they, they talk about things like, and I don't remember the exact space, but I remember them saying desks should be 56 inches apart. That's, that's ridiculous. Like that, that's what you're going to test somebody on and, and to judge whether they're a good instructor and not their tone and how they teach the skills. And the fact that most fire service should be gearing up for time compression, high stress, psychomotor skills, in that environment and perceived chaos is the way that we reduce stress by removal of that. Right. I mean, you're, you're physiologically, you react to trauma, which is going to happen because it's a firefight and psychological chaos. What happens between your ears? That is what acute stress is. It's the manifestation of that in the physical sense the diminishing of fine motor skills and perception coupled directly to your heart rate. So the quickest way to reduce stress is to have an algorithm. Have people keep the fire in the bag. Where's it been? Where's it at? Where's it going? If I do this, this will happen. If it doesn't, I'm going to do this. If it doesn't, I can't go. I'm going to back out. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And you can, you can program that. And, people will hide behind the comment. I heard this first thing, right? Um, I remember in my very first fire academy, one of the instructors saying, every fire is different. And immediately I was like, you just spent two, three days teaching me about fire behavior and saying it's consistent. How can it be different? Like, what? That doesn't make sense. And every fire is different. And people use that as the, the guys to hide behind of why they're not prepared. Statistically, there is probability, and that's where you start your curriculum from. Probability, not possibility. And you have to be able to break it down to such a degree that whatever the movement is, starting with the simple movement, whatever the movement is that you make the most often, start with that. 
So if I was doing forcible entry, because you brought that example up, I wouldn't do all the different forces. I would do conventional inward swinging irons because that's what 73% of the time people are forcing. Single family dwellings, front door, inward swinging irons. And what's the one movement that you do with a Halligan that you do in every time you force? That's where you start. So that every time that movement's made on every other subsequent force, it's drawing a mental, a neural map, and it's all coming back to that one thing. The, the critical piece of intellectually when you set out to do your training is what are you doing? Why are you doing it? When would you do it? And then how would you do it? And if, I mean, Grant, you, I mean, both you all have been through the program. The first three hours is fire behavior. This is what's going on. This is why we're doing it. And then that whole algorithm of this is when you apply water. When it, in this manner, you apply water in this environment. And if not, then this. And if not, back out. I mean, it, it all breaks down to very, very simple pieces that create a, a, a tree. And what that allows people to do is be in the moment. And when they're in the moment, they can now react to those things that are different. But if we tell people from day one that every fire is different, then how do you practice for that? Like, it, you know, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. It, and it, it, it creates this mental paradigm that isn't accurate. And so, what you do is you teach from the most basic and you always include those things, whether you're teaching a tactic or a technique or techniques in sequence. What are you doing? Why? And once you've gotten that and they understand that why, now their mission is defined. And then you go, when would you do it? Because not every, you don't do, there's not one way to do it. So when do you do this? And now how do you do it? Because what happens is, is we come in and we go, this is how you do it. Okay. And I remember in my first academy going, this is how you do this. Okay. And then I went to the next station and the guy's like, you don't do it that way. You do it this way. And then the next guy goes, you don't do it that way. You do it this way. Or uh, high angle dangle. This is, this is a famous one. Um, you come in in year one, you learn a sequence of knots that make this system. Year 10, they've changed some of the knots. Well, that's in op fucking zip, opposition. That's in opposition to what I learned. You're telling me that I've been doing it wrong because you just changed the knots. Right? That's why senior members often complain about change. Oh, they're telling me I'm doing it wrong. No. If you teach what you're doing and why before you teach how then you've coded the brain that accomplishment of the mission we need to do this and now any alteration in how you're doing it they're not married to how they're doing it they're married to getting this micro skill done in a macro environment and how that fits into the macro environment now you've created 
somebody that understands the bigger picture. So when you come along 10 years from now and you change the knots and you cite why you're changing them, we changed this knot from this to this. This is why. Let's go. You're not in opposition. You've never told anyone that you're doing it wrong or they've been doing it wrong. You're saying, this is how we were doing it, and this is how we're doing it today. This is why. It's simpler. It's easier. It is more effective. Not necessarily efficient, but effective. Because efficiency means and effectiveness have very different meanings uh, semantically. So, um, And that might be more efficient. You might be faster. But what we're looking for is thorough, complete, total, and, and of quality. And that only comes from effective application. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the basic premise for, for what I do and, and why. And I, I break it down into these very, very small pieces. And we start by building those pieces. And by the end of the program, people understand how the position that they learned in the beginning is related to what they just did when they put the whole thing together from rig to door, door to seat, and what you do in the fire room. And they, they see the connection, and because of that, it creates a system. And that system is then user-friendly. They can take it apart because they understand it. Right. So it's a lot of, and the other one, and I think the biggest thing that people, I get asked all the time is how do you implement change? And then there's some personal components to that, clearly. Uh, but the most important um, way that you can change your fire department right now, and I, it pains me when I hear people come back from my program or they come from another program and they're, they're, they're banging their head against the wall because they're dealing with that phenomenon I just described. But also, they're, they, kept it, they came in and they showed all the hows. Um, that's not what you start with. You start with the language. All change stems from first and foremost being able to define your terms. And through that shared language of this is what this phenomena is called. This is what this position is called. When you have those code words, you created a jargon. And a jargon technically um, is a language designed for a trade. It's a language in which there is very little ambiguity. Jargons shouldn't be poetic. <laughs> they should be specific. And unfortunately, the American Fire Service has allowed for there to be multiple dialects, regionally and generationally. And so we have terms such as flashover or fire or indirect attack or any of these things that are very, very fundamental to what we're doing. And they are defined in three and four different ways within one agency. So the first thing that has to happen is the agency and or the industry needs to take control of its own language and say, listen, all these other definitions exist, but when we say this, this is what we mean. And there can be no ambiguity. And once you do that and you start with and follow the same progression, what? What are we talking about? Why? 
when and how by first defining if it's building construction, real building terms, not, <laughs> I know this is, this is sacrilege, but I do some construction. Brannigan, I wouldn't put against a, a carpenter. I think a carpenter would blow his mind. Like, I mean, I was talking to a civil engineer and I was like, a Perlin. This was 15 years ago. And he's like, what? A Perlin? You know, Perlins are intersecting. They're usually found on railroad trusses to a civil engineer. So we've, I mean, we, not to say there's no value in the book, but just to say that, you know, we should be using terms that are already there. For example, heat gradient, pressure gradient, flow path. Not air track, not flow path. We should, and this, when I was on the UL, it was the same thing. I, I mentioned the same thing. You know, there are science words out there. Why don't we use those? Because those have been defined for hundreds of years, and and now we wouldn't we wouldn't have to redefine our terms every thirty, and lead to confusion. You know, some some people's backdraft is another person's flashover. And we're wondering why we can't talk. And so what happens in the fire service is tomato, tomato, potato, potato. And if we could just start by, let's define terms. And some departments might have variants on that. But if you have that thing defined, you've created a, a, a medium of exchange. I mean, you and I can't talk about a fire and what happened if we don't use the same methodology, if we don't use the same verbiage. Now it's just a story. And it was, I was talking to a mentor of mine and this, this was struck me. I was able to articulate it, uh, I don't know, probably about six years ago, because I was talking to a mentor of mine, I was asking him a question about a particular fire that I'd had. And I, I mentioned that I made the room and then I hit it with a, you know, just the getting to the room was the major question. And once I got there, I said, yeah, and then I did an indirect attack. And he looks at me in his eyes like, I thought you said you were in the inside of the building. And I'm like, I, I was. I made the room. I'm extinguishing it now. I've confined the fire. Now I'm extinguishing it. I confined the fire in a way that protected the internal exposures. He's like, but you said you did an indirect. And I was like, yeah, what, what are you talking about? An indirect for me is uh, layman 1949, which is, that's where my indirect attack definition came from. The people that taught me were using that definition, which was, you've made the fire room, you're doing a high to low fire attack, reversing, you know, cooling, shrinking, compressing, cooling, and all that, moving the byproducts away from you. So my definition for indirect was a modern day combination. His definition for an indirect is one where you're not inside the building. It's a defensive fire. That's just one example. That happens all the time in firehouses all across the country. So in order to first start having a conversation, you have to speak the same jargon. You have to speak the same language because otherwise we spend as you guys know from taking the class, the first two and a half, three hours is when I say this, this is what I mean. This is what this is called. So we have to spend our time defining our terms. And I think in, one, in some ways, what the European Fire Service does better than the U.S. is they define their terms and they're not totally, but they're, they're closer to the scientific definition. There is less variance. 
in in their their language. Because what ends up happening with us is potato, 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 tomato, tomato, fuck you, and everything gets called off. Right? We call the whole thing off. We quit talking because we don't have a way that we talk. If I came in, it's effectively, I mean, to make it super simple, if I came in and spoke in Mongolian for the first three hours, nobody would know what the hell I'm talking about. And I might be saying everything right. So that's the big part of the why and uh, the what and the why. And then the when is super important because the when is not every option is created equal. And so there are options that you are going to do with greater frequency than others. And all of this stuff should be based off data and experience. And that's where we drill from. So the other component of having this system in language is you create a superstructure for which filter all your experience through. If every fire is different, there's very, I mean, think about your very first fire that you went in that was a working fire. What do you remember from it? Almost nothing. Because it was all a blur. Now think about your last working fire. What do you remember from it? You remember way more. Why? Because you know what's going on. Your heart rate's lower. You have an expectation of outcome. Because of that, your heart rate's lower, which means you're paying more attention to your environment. So you actually have a filter from which you are interpreting your information. And that filter allows you to focus on those things that are different. So now it becomes your experience. And you can articulate it. So... It really is so fundamental that the teaching methodology that I use, I mean, I, and I think that this is a real big important part, which is, you know, my friend Gabe and I were talking about this, where training is an experience. You're not getting experience training. If you define experience is what you learned from real events. What training is doing is reinforcing reaction and action to a set of parameters. And it is creating a mental superstructure and a physical expression that is coded and practiced, which means when I see this, I react in this way. And really what's into the interesting flip between training and experience is training allows you to experience because you have a way that you're doing it and a filter from which it goes through. It is all up, goes on between the ears. And when people say muscle memory, that's, that's not accurate. Muscles don't memorize anything. It has to do with your cognitive recollection. Uh, it's, a, it's a shortcut way that is, you know, people are like, oh, it takes 10,000 reps. No, it doesn't. It takes the number of reps that it takes is based off where you are on the continuum of experience and, and practice. In other words, if I take someone right now, this brand new, and I put them on a wrestling mat and I say, here, I'm going to show you something. And a week later, ask them to perform that in a competition. They're going to get shredded, but if they're, and, and they're barely going to know it. But if I take someone that's 15 years or 18 years or 20 years in that knows a whole bunch of stuff, their, their, their mental roadmap is filled with landmarks instead of just two points, the beginning and the end. And I show them something within three days, they can turn around and win nationals with it or place nationally and get a silver technically because they have a paradigm for where it fits 
and they have other things that they go, oh, this is like this, therefore, because of how they're practiced. And that's, that's why the whole, like, you know, how many reps it takes for mastery is complete and utter nonsense. What it, what, I mean, it's not completely nonsense, but it's, it's not accurate. It, it takes different people, different amounts. And if the drills which you are using to teach a particular skill set are specific and focused, it takes less reps too, regardless of where you're at. So those are, those are all like really, really important parts. And the only way that someone can actually have even this conversation with their skill set is they know it. And that comes from doing in time. In other words, you, not any three of you ice skate. No. Yeah. I've attempted. Okay. I have. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So I can ice skate too. Grant can ice skate. That's makes sense because of where he lives. So why don't we go take a week long course on skating and hockey and then we should be eligible to teach in the, I mean, a train the trainer for the NHL. That would work, wouldn't it? <laughs> no, it doesn't work. The only way that you can pass on a skill or break something down to that level is that you truly understand it. And that isn't a moment in time. That's a continuum. So if you're further along or I'm further along in a particular skill set, then it's okay for me to pass on those skills as long as I am being very cog, you know, focused on it and paying attention to the hows and all that, the mechanics of that transmission. But, um, you know, instructor one and instructor two to come back to where I kind of left hanging is completely broken. The books that we use from which to test aren't even consistent in their verbiage. There's a very few, I don't remember, it's under 10 pages in the IFSTA instructional manual on actually psychomotor skills, which is where the vast majority of our skill sets perform, even our ones that aren't hands-on skills. So that's broken. And train the trainer? Train the trainer is fucking broken and corrupt. It's a money-making scheme. So is instructor one and two. I mean, it makes people cash. That's why they do it. No one else in the world that's performance-based uses either of those models. So how are we an exception? So for me, it's it, now, and I'm not saying the people doing those things are corrupt. What I'm saying is, is they're doing what was done to them. And when I came in, I already had experience in this. I already had experience in leverage and, and movement with, you know, in a, in a unified style of movement and how you process information into that and, and all of those things. So, and cause I came in a little older and so, and because of my own personal sometimes strength, sometimes weakness. If you tell me something and I ask you at the appropriate moment, and this is a big deal at the appropriate moment, why? And you tell me because I said so, I'm a fucking, no way. That shit ain't going to fly. That's not just not going to work. And I'm not, I was never someone that took well to people trying to browbeat and humiliate and intimidate so that you don't get asked questions because if you get asked a question and you can't answer it, you're obviously not as you're not the person that you just portrayed yourself as, which is what we do. We beat each other up and in hopes that they don't ask questions because if they ask a question, we might not have the answer. And instead of going, Ooh, that's a good question. Let's figure it out. That's never been done for us. So our, 
our dysfunction comes from our lack of in level in many places our lack of comprehension and if it doesn't come from that if our if that behavior comes and the person can't explain it then that person shouldn't be doing the instruction because that shit doesn't work either right that's a that's a moral character that's a moral failing and so you know it, there, it's either mistakes out of ignorance or mistakes out of neglect mistakes out of ignorance or oh, i didn't know that was done to me i repeated it now i've been made aware of that behavior is negative. Now we're going to change. But, you know, uh, but if I know better and I continue to do it, well, then that's a, that's neglect and that's wrong. And that's a question of character. So, um, you know, we, we've, we've wrapped, I mean, at no, one of the guys that teaches with us, um, played for one year and then he went on to another university, played baseball. He played offensive line for Notre Dame. Um, there's three things they do with their feet and four they do with their hands. That's it. Since they were tiny. That's it. So there isn't that many things that you need to be able to do with, for example, with the hand line. You know, you, you, you start with it even on that level. Like, well, how many options do you really need? There's, there's only, and, and if you have multiple options, you have to have a hierarchy of which is the best and why. And usually that has to do with flexibility as far as its application. It is the most flexible. So if, um, you know, there's the, the, the lines, the, the, the variables aren't that many. And so you can address them um, if, if you thought about them. So that's, that's, I mean, kind of a long, long winded overview, but that's, that's really the point. Um, for me. And then the other big component that breaks into threes is when you're training, are you in the cognitive phase of skill acquisition? Are you in the associative phase of skill acquisition? Are you in the autonomy phase of skill acquisition? The cognitive is when you learn a skill, you learn that skill in isolation. The associative is when you start to associate the skill with the environment and you, you start to drill it in the environment that simulates when you would use it. It also associates that skill with the next choice based off conditions. If this, then this. If it alters, go to this. And what you start to create there, obviously, is, is using grammar to illustrate it as a mental roadmap. And, the, and just do these things. And if it doesn't go the way you want it to, back out. You're, it's a no-go. So. Um, and, and the autonomy phase is the, where you are doing it all together. In other words, you guys show up, I would say, go to this in this channel. I show you a picture of a structure of a building on fire. You go to work. When we're done, we talk about what we learned. And this phase can be one in my own definitions. And these are my own, um, additions to this model is you have a sandbox and you have guided. You have a guided tour and you have a sandbox. A sandbox is, I don't care, um, Kyle, I don't care how you get the guy off the hill. Get him off the side of that fucking building. I don't care how you do it. Do it with what you have. This area, this area is a no-go because they're vats of acid that has followed the, the terrible earthquake because that's how often the drills go, right? It's just compounding what ifs. 
that's a, that's a free play. That's a sandbox. You do your thing. Awesome. What'd you get from it? This, this, and this. Cool. Let's do it again. This time, Grant, you're in charge and you can't do it that way. Got to do it a different way. That's, that's where we start to evaluate when we have a finite number of options. We're evaluating what makes the most sense based off of our own demographics. There's also guided. So let's say that uh, we're having a hard time. I mean, there's only three uses of a hand line, right? In order. That's it. It's an attack line, exposure line, or a backup line. In that order. Um, and if you don't need the exposure line, then you can use your backup line, I guess. But it's it's pretty simple. So let's say that our we are we've identified from evaluation of our actual fires that our experience is not getting the second line. And for whatever reason, our people are not getting the second line above the fire for exposure quick enough. So the three of us are running the drill and we are trying to reinforce best practice. This is the guided tour of autonomy where we're going to do single family dwelling fires. We're pulling in three or four companies or whatever, and we have a kitchen fire. And if they go kitchen fire above grade and then, you know, mop it up, that's it. If they forget the exposure line, Grant keys the mic on a radio on a separate channel and goes, they've missed it. Then it, and uh, Kyle is in charge of the whole evolution. He walks up to the instructor or the, the, the officer in charge and goes, you see this. This was what you saw upon arrival. They showed you that. Get off and go to work. Now you see this. And there's flame blowing out the second story. Oh, shit. Get the second line upstairs. Okay. They get it up there. They do whatever style of attack you're looking for, blah, blah, blah. You've reinforced it. They come back down. What did we learn? Oh, man. Gosh, I didn't think about it. You know, I had it so awesome. All right, let's do it again. Let's do it again. All right, that's it. We're done for the day. Nice job. By the way, I already prepaid for your coffee on the way home. Stop by such and such a station. Bribery is <laughs> totally legitimate. Uh, so those are two different levels of autonomy with drilling. But in order to reach that point, all of the skills that go into that evolution already have to be in your algorithm. The way to think of it is that scrimmage. And even when you scrimmaged, whenever you, whatever sport you played, it wasn't always just go. There was often they were, you were scrimmaging, but in you were scrimmaging in these micro environments, these little scenarios that occur during the game because they actually read their film and they pay attention to what's going on and they pay attention to what's successful and what's not successful. That's what they do at a high level, at a professional level. And what they do at a recreational level is they go, you know, your, your co-rec sport or your, your fourth graders, they're just trying to show them how to play the sport. They're going to run their offense or do whatever they're going to do, regardless of what the other team is doing. They're not evaluating success and failure so much. They're trying to teach basic fundamental principles that will then, as, they, as the athlete moves on, will be able to be adapted and adjusted to be mobile and to, to have a tactical switch in the middle of, a, of an event. I'm sorry, I almost said in the middle of a fire. But if you don't have a fundamental skill set, and a, then you can't change. 
And whether or not people want to admit this or not, tactics are determined by the success or failure at the task level. So in order to call an audible, you have to have a play. And we don't, as an industry, we don't get people to this point. This is how we do it, kid. Why? Because I said so. And instead of, well, we do it this way because of this and this. Well, if you have the reasons, you also have the, the measure to test new methods. We do this because of this. So if someone comes in with a, something new, hey, we should try this. We should test it out. Okay, well, we can put it through a set of parameters because the reason we're doing things is defined. So, you know, all of those things go into play for that, that autonomy. But that autonomy should only make up about 10 to 15% of your practice time. And once you're out of recruit school, your basic training, your cognitive skills should only make up about 10 or 15 minutes of, or 15% of your training time. And cognitive again is, this is this, this is a hip grip. We do this like this with this setting in this environment. Great. But we have those skills already built. So the most of practice for professionals is in the, is in the associative phase. Hey, you're going to do this in this environment. Down the hallway, walking, drop to your knees, knee walk, push. Deeper than wide, back to the hallway, turn right and push. Okay, great. Now we change one thing. It's a T, not a right angle. So now your backup person or your heel is doing their thing. They, their thing is altered, but the evolution is the exact same. Now it's a two corners or three people or, you know, your, your, your associative phase is specific to your goal, what you're trying to get. It's a combination of skills that is trying to paint the picture of a particular environment. And the only thing you change when you alter those drills is one variable. You can't change three or four variables unless you're breaking the drills entirely off. Stop, go get some water, come back. Hey, we're moving on to a different environment. But you can't change the event every single evolution to keep yourself interested so it's safe to say they don't that, track so it's safe to say that you would say train like you play is complete bs uh it uh practice like you play practice like you practice. play train like you yeah yeah real time let's do it practice practice what you will play but yeah if so that that there is a time and place for full gear full speed but if we did that every night at practice, the military practices clearing rooms with their fingers, without guns. They practice it with their fingers. And they walk through it. And they work on this, that, good, this, that, good, this, that, next. If you, when people, when firefighters say, well, you don't, you got to practice like you play. That's some macho bullshit that that person has never played a sport above a mediocre level because if they have, they know, especially if it's a contact sport, you couldn't do that. You can't practice full speed, full bore for a week and expect to compete this weekend. You'd be fucking crushed. Physically, you wouldn't be capable. 
mentally you'd be silly putty. Uh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's what people say when they're trying to the extreme and have the practice as the crucible. It's part of the entrance to the club, right, Grant? Isn't that, I mean, you and I have talked about this before. It, it, the fire service is a club more than it's a profession. And if we beat people up real good for a year and kind of browbeat them in, and then eventually if we like them, maybe we can include them and then they can do the same to other people. Uh, that's what we do and practice like you play, bro. That person that says that is often the first one to stop practicing. It's in my observation and that's non-scientific, but that is definitely, I've, I've heard it a lot of times. And so the simple answer is yes, it's complete and utter nonsense. You need to be able to, and, and one of the major differences in fire service training versus the military or sport or cops is for the vast majority of the American fire service, we don't go out of service to practice. At no point did, uh, who did the Dolphins just play? Oh, they played New England. At no point were the Dolphins practicing and then the New England bus showed up in front of them and went, we're playing now. The guy's like, oh shit, let's get ready to go. That doesn't happen. But that happens in the fire service. We stay in service and so we don't really commit to practice because people here, I don't know what to practice because they haven't broken their skill sets down into the micro pieces that can break down into, you know, 30 second drill, three minute drill, five minute drill while you're in service in such a way that doesn't compromise your operational readiness. So in my company makes drill part of it's every day. And sometimes they're longer and the, the boss will say, Hey, we're going to go out except for fire. But most of the time it's around the station with a dry piece of hose or it's with a charge line that's extra in case we have to leave it and drive off. So um, sometimes it's walking through the building, practicing the language that you would use if we're moving hose in this space. I would do this, my hose would drop here, I would push the surplus there, those things. So yes, no, that's, that's complete and utter nonsense and doesn't hold water. I mean, pun intended, it, no other methodology says that. You practice like you play all the time. That's ridiculous. There's a time and place for that, but it's very, very limited. So yes, it's wrong. So you've mentioned a couple different uh, training methodologies and all that. It sounds like you're, are you Fitz Posner? for the most part, or if people wanted to have some reference to where you're at, what, what would they look at? Well, yeah, I look at, um, so I started reading a lot of the stuff that came out of West Point, Annapolis, post, starting in post-World uh, War I. And so there's a lot of, of um, there's a lot of kind of uh, essays that are out there. And the reason I started so early and, and grew this way was because I wanted to know where everything was coming from. And I wanted to be able to track alterations that have been made along the way because I don't want to stumble across something and think it's new. I want to know that, oh, someone tried this and the reason they quit doing it is because of this. Or someone tried this in another setting and it applies here. So in order to know what you're doing, you have to know where you're from. And that's why taking the time to read those bibliographies 
is, is so important. Um, but for practical breakdown, I use, um, for outline, the way that I outline my program is Fitzpositor. Yes. And it's, I, I like it because though a lot of learning people are go, Oh, that's old school. It's also old school and is universal. It shows up in sport, military. It shows up in, um, it, you know, anything that includes motor skills. It's one of the kind of modern foundations. The other thing that I think is super important about it is it's really easy. And it isn't that complex. And dummies like myself can figure it out if you understand it. And it's easy to understand. And that is really, I mean, that's another phenomenon of education. And I think this is a, a it's actually, um, it, I have it written in my office, uh, which is you know, the beginning mind sees thousands of variables and the experienced mind knows there's very few. And that said, uh, it was either Socrates or Plato said it, Munches said it. I mean, it's it's been said by a lot of, philosophers over the time. And it's true. I mean, what'll happen in the fire service is because what we're doing isn't that complex. And because the difference for many people, now this is a, this is two little points that deviate off this. The first thing is, is don't make it more complex, make it less complex, make a, make a technical understanding of and comprehension of when, why, all those things, what, when, why, how, but then look for the themes that are reoccurring and emphasize on those, whether they're technical or tactical. So it shouldn't get more complex. And the reason it does is the most destructive three letter word in our occupation isn't EMS. It isn't ALS, BLS, IMS, NIMS. It's none of the S families of abbreviation. It's EGO. And what happens is people start teaching us something and they get bored with it. They know it. So they make it, they, their practice becomes, let me show you how good I am. Instead of, let's just keep it simple and keep working through it. And realizing that who you're practicing for is everyone, but you're also, if you're teaching a class, you're not teaching it for you and to keep it interesting for you. It, it, and so there's, 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 there's that part that the other component of this, and this is a big deal. And this comes back to what Gabe and I were talking about with the difference between experience and practice and, and, and using it to define, defining it the way that for the sake of this argument, the way that I am experience is what you learn from real events practice is the paradigm that sets up the structure that allows you to to be prepared for that you can prepare for something that you have never had happen you have to be honest about it and it should be based off that experience of people that have had it happen and this is how i practice for this um this year that i know of for example 15 people that i know of that have been through the program uh have emailed me and said, I didn't fall in a hole. I'd never even been taught how to sound the floor. I didn't put my leg through a hole. I didn't step over the outside of the, the remodel and have floor collapse because 
of this program. And I'd never felt a hole before, but I felt it. I found it on the stair. I found it. So they were practicing for something that had never occurred, but it was valid because it ha- it does occur. And the practice, you know, set them up for that. But in many, many places, so the, the history of burning in the United States is one that the amount of burning doesn't actually change that much. What varies is where is burning. And that is a big deal because in one location, it used to burn like crazy. Now it doesn't. It remodeled, it gentrified. They're not going to burn. In another 30 years, they're going to burn like crazy again. The number of burns in the United States has remained fairly consistent at approximately, give or take, uh, three quarters of a million. Well, there's 1.5 million firefighters. And I can tell you right now, I give you a, an example from my Washington, the Washington State Fire Academy, which fundamentally is teaching stuff that doesn't work. It's been proven through experience and now retesting and having the testing prove experience to not work, but they're still teaching it. And conceivably, and I'll give you the example. I had this guy that was when I went through, you know, my very first fire academy, this guy was, I mean, his gear was all beat up. He was a big fucking talker, yammering on, yammering on, yammering on. And what I've known now is that my last year, I probably saw more fire than he did in his whole career. Um, and I think, and so the difference between, and let's just say hypothetically, you get someone in a teaching space that doesn't have a lot of experience. It's okay to pass on skills. Totally. But you can't pass them on with bravado. You have to pass them on with humility. I've never done this, but this is what I was told from this person. And this person went on, you know, a gajillion fires. Here's the experience. I'm, I'm gearing my practice to real life events, not make-believe, not what I think but what the data proves. And there, there is data. But the problem is, is that it, when you go into a training academy and you have someone like right now at the Washington State Fire Academy, you have people teaching there that have less than five years of experience. And they're uh, on the job. And they maybe go to one structure fire a year because of where they work. I'm not belittling them at all. But their behavior, what's the difference between them and the person that just came in? Five working fires? That's not really that much difference in experience, is it? And so what ends up happening is is in order to hide the lack of real-life application, they rely on bravado, machismo, and bully-type stuff. So... Most of the American Fire Service doesn't goes on a medium amount of fire. That's the tr- that's the truth. That's the history. That's the way it's always been. But that doesn't mean you can't set up and practice for what is occurring. And I'm always looking for the simple. What happens on every fire? 73% roughly of the fires fought in this country are fought in single family dwellings, 14 to 1800 square feet, 
two bins on a one story, three on a two. One room, two room fires with extension into the hallway fought by one and two people or two and three people on the hand line. Okay, so tell me again how they're so different. And with that in mind, you should, we should be building from those numbers and looking at that stuff and go, okay, so this is what we practice for. And if we're super good at basics, and when I process all the fires that I've ever been to and that I know that people have been to, uh, it comes down to really four things. Water, search, whole supply. Those are the things that occur on every single fire. And supply occurs when you're going to water for more than X amount of time based off your own. So we should be starting there. And that's how you should build your academy from probability to possibility. They probably don't need to know that much about the water system. But because we, to say it's these four things, here's a book that does these. Uh, that doesn't that doesn't build the industry. That doesn't build certification. That builds like this is what we do. This is why we do it. Let's do it over and over again. Hey, every once in a while, let's look at how someone else is doing these four things, and then add all the other stuff on. Right? I mean, but if you look at fire attack and you, most of your books, it's chapter sixteen, fourteen, ten. It's not connected to fire behavior. It's not connected to uh, building construction, which we know it is. So maybe we should be clustering our training from the probable and then the possible. The, the meat of the matter and the extras. So, but in order to continue with the bravado, uh, we have to further complicate. And it's being complicated by people that are trying to complicate it with information that they only partially understand. So it, it all breaks down to the humility of learning where I first started, which is the ability to say, I don't know everything. This is what I do know. And it's subject to change. Let's do this. <laughs> and being purposeful in every single thing you're doing. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's, well, dude, I think you hit on, on so many good things. Uh, you know, normally people tune in and they're like, oh, we're going to talk engine and it's going to be Nozzle Ford and all that. But I think the background on how you got to where you got in your methodology and in theories and all that just crosses so many, so many realms. And, and, uh, well, it's, it's, I appreciate that. It's, it's, uh, I mean, I think when I first started, I mean, um, when I first started doing this, I was a heretic. And to many people, I was a heretic. They didn't know what I was doing. Um, there are people out there, some of whom uh, have said it, that I teach people to go down space and take a beating. Um, Kyle, Grant, have I ever said that? One fucking time. I've never said that. The problem is, is if you don't have the vocabulary and you don't know what I'm doing, then it may appear that. But that's the exact opposite. And I think as time has gone on, and, and, and really, I think there's also, Grant, part of the, the initial resistance was, frankly, that I don't kiss rings. I don't, I just do what I do. And I don't, I stay out of the, I stay out of the community as much as possible. I just, I just do my thing. And people viewed me kind of as a wild card. The other thing to consider was that 
when I get up and I talk like today, at no point have I pointed the finger at an individual and said, this is you. What I've done is I've identified certain types of behaviors. And that's always been, I have never, ever resorted to name calling. What I do is I describe certain types of behaviors and then people sometimes early on, especially associated with those behaviors, personally, quietly, when they're listening to it. And there's three reactions to that. There is, oh shit, I never thought of that. He's right, which I get quite frequently. There's also, you know, I've done that. Oops. We've all done shit. We're not a, we don't dig. You got to say it. You know what? I did this. This was terrible. I didn't think it through. I was doing what was done to me. I've thought it through. By the way, rookie, I'm sorry. I never should have said that that way. I was, that, I was not being the advocate of the profession nor the ambassador of my fire department. I did not live up to my own standards. I apologize for that. But so there's that reaction. There's the reaction of obliviousness, like, yeah, he's right. They don't recognize that behavior in their own selves. And then there's the other reaction, which is, oh my God, he's describing me or my behavior. And I can't go back to the firehouse and go, you know what? He had a lot of great points. I got to go back and say he's churlish and insubordinate. And that's why I don't like him. It's not what he said. It's how he said it. They have to find a style difference so that they can create the reason why their behavior even though it is consistent with what I defined, their behavior, they are somehow different. It's a different cause. So there's kind of those, the reaction. And I think early on too, because I don't, um, I have an outline, but I don't use PowerPoint. It, PowerPoint is the death of the modern, of the speaker. It is death of oratory. It is the antithesis of good presentation. It's good to have visual, but the, the slippery slope to someone that doesn't practice what they're doing is they rely on the easiest crutch. And I can put shit up on that and then I can repeat that and that becomes the class. So because I don't do that, people often thought, um, because I'm reading faces, I'm trying to pay attention to what people are, how they're reacting and knowing what area they're from and what their strengths and weaknesses are. I know when to slow down on certain aspects, when to explain certain things in a different way, all of those things, including when to use humor and, and, you know, all of that. Um, they thought that I was just chaotic. It was just like this random, this like, whoa, what just happened? The whirlwind, the Tasmanian devil came flying through here and there's so much information and blah, blah. Well, over the course of the last bit of time, I think people, especially as they took the class multiple times and they saw the same thing showing up, though altered sometimes in methodology, they were like, oh man, this isn't just willy-nilly. And the difference is, is that when I came in, I had a background. I had already been trained by some of the world's best coaches on how to do it and how they went about coaching some of the world's best athletes in this particular sport. And then they gave me their bibliography. And um, fundamentally, I mean, you know, I've joked about it and it's just the right series of events. You know, um, if I don't have a lot of IFSAC certifications, I do have one in scoring low on promotional exams, though. I'm thinking operations level, maybe tech level. It's, and it's scoring low on, 
And that's because the way my brain works, I'm not data. I don't take a data a piece of data and remember it. I remember systems. I see a pulley. I know how the lever's working. Um, I, when I, re, when I study foreign languages, I study the system before I study the verbiage. You know, I, I study how it goes together. And I, when I know those things, and then I work from roots and nouns and then add in verbs and don't worry about tense yet, that'll come, you know, and all of those kinds of things. That's how I learn material. I learn it as a system. So why I do poorly on exams is because those are, um, those are data points, trivia. And when I read my material, no matter how many chiefs and friends and company officers and people that have taken our, our Seattle Fires exam tell you, don't study for comprehension. I cannot do that. I have to. That's the way that my, I, it is my instinct. I study for comprehension. And so I, you know, when something comes up that conflicts, I got to go back and I got to sort it out. And it's otherwise, it's like a neurosis. So with the rebut, with regards to training and methodologies, I already had a methodology before I was ever asked to show what I was showing. And when that training officer came to me and said, Hey, you just showed some of our people a couple of things. They caught fire the next day and I've never seen the line move like that. Can you come teach um, in a good way? Can, uh, can you come teach a class for our agency? Can we host you? And I was like, uh, okay. And they're like, what do you want to call it? Um, I don't know. I'll be there at this date. And what I did was I took, I sat down with a piece of paper, papers, with all of my notes of things that I did and why, and I pulled out my methodology, my outline for how I go about doing the other stuff that I do, which was successful. And I just took that data and I put it into that. I took that collection of stuff and stuck it through the filter of how I coach, but also how I learn. And that's where it came from. So, uh, you know, it really is the blending of a couple of, of worlds. And I, I think from a, a global perspective, right, from a macro perspective, you got to remember that the people coming in are full-grown fucking adults. Treat them like that. Um, and be an advocate and an ambassador and don't, especially when they're new, friendliness and friendship are two different things. And, and they have to get through a certain number of things. But if you're professional in your disposition and your delivery, then you absolve your agency. You allow your agency to get rid of. We fire a lot of people out of our drill school. A lot. And a lot of places say they can't. Well, they can't because there is no system. There is no, there is the, there is the potential that the reason you fired them is because you don't like them. You can't have that. It has to be a performance. And that performance can also be character, right? You can, it, there can be failures in character, but this, this thing has to, we have to grow. And until I, I frankly believe until we become the profession that we say we are, 
it is impossible to be the family that we want to be. And I, I mean, I hear all the time millennials, this millennials, that, but it's the senior guy that's upset because the millennial asked him a question. They people that are good with computers and grew up with them process information differently. That doesn't, that's not right or wrong. It's just the, that's just the facts. And whether or not me personally wish there was more people that like myself that had gone to trade school. Yes, I do. But that is more than just for the fire service. That's for the country and our culture, right? It's good to know how to do things. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that, um, blaming it on their age is, is a cop out. It's absolving the, the senior people of, of transmitting the information. I was told by a guy once, well, why do you keep going and taking classes? And I'm like, cause I need to know the information. He's like, well, he's like, well, why aren't you taking them? He's like, well, because I know how to do it. And I'm like, well, why aren't you fucking showing me? Well, if you show me how to do it and then I won't have to go take a class. But to this point, all you've shown me is 10 toes up in a, in a recliner, which is not something I'm comfortable with. So, I mean, I think there's that aspect. And I think the other thing is on a training in the fire service, because for years and years, there were choke points. There was a filter that you had to go through. And if you didn't go through this choke point, you didn't get teaching because, you know, I don't work for the right fire department, frankly. I don't have the right accent. I'm not on the right coast. Um, you know, I'm in, you know, most people think I'm in Canada, but no longer in today's day and age, do we have to go through any specific filter? If you are skilled and good and a nice person, then that information is going to get out because the information changes, which means we can stop the fucking drama. We can stop as an industry competing with one another, which happens all the time. And you guys know it. You've seen it uh, at this point. Uh, you can stop comparing and contrasting. What we should be saying is, listen, I got this from so-and-so, this person, this person, this person, this is what I'm doing, this is why. You should be draw we should be drawing those connections to our, our people that we, our, our lineage, our, our bibliography. And by doing that, you add. But there's still people out there that think that by being divisive, and provocative on the internet that that's going to give them a name and keep them relevant. I haven't been on the internet in over a year because I got tired of watching people behave like it's high school. Just do what we do. Do what we do as individuals. Say why. There's no need for comparison. And if somebody asks you, don't stoop into the mud. Just say they, I don't know what they do because I've never done it. Or I do know what they do. This is why I do it slightly different. But as long as you can accomplish the mission, that's okay. The other thing is, um, as an industry, we try to do too much in our training sessions. There's a lot of programs out there that hit on three or four things in one session and want those things to be integrated. In effect, what their people are trying to do is run associative, not associative drills. They're trying to run autonomous drills. This is what you're going to do in the first three minutes. Awesome. But you need to know every one of those skills before you arrive. Because now are you learning the skill and not actually able to learn it completely because you don't have the time because you got to do another whole evolution? 
or are you learning how the skills go together? Two different things. So for example, and, and what I'm to make it even more clear, I have a burn curriculum. We do it about three or four times a year. I have a multi-company curriculum. We do it two or three times a year. In order to do those things, you must first do the nozzle forward, which is cognitive skill and associative drills. It's creating the notes and scales and the phrases that go into actually playing music. But if we think about it on simple terms and we break down all the, what I've talked about to this most, to, to, a, to a, a parallel, it's playing music. Um, if you learn an instrument, you learn a note. And until you learn the note, learning the scale makes no difference. And what the scale is, is a series of notes that go together that sound nice. But there's limited number of notes and there's a limited number of scales, finite, but infinite ways to express it because of everything else, including the rest. Music is relevant to the silence as it is to the sound, including the staccato, crescendo, the, the, the choppiness, the, the all of that personality that goes into music has a term. They know what it is and they can define it. They also know when to jump keys, like Miles Davis didn't just pick up a trumpet. He knew a good jazz musician knows that they're going to go from A to F on these notes. We're going to, <laughs> when we hit these two notes, we're going to go change keys because those are the notes that the scales share. And that's, that's firefighting. And the nozzle forward as a program is notes and scales and rests and crescendos and little one and two line, get the pun there, uh, musical pieces. You're playing one line, one phrase, and backing up and doing it again. And now you're playing another phrase, and you end up playing all the phrases that go together into this one piece of music. But you don't try to put the sheet of music together until you can do all of those things, because then it doesn't make sense. It's just noise. And that's that the in and your performance of the piece occurs not very frequently compared to how much you practice and and then the other thing about it is codification like if you go into any ballet school in the world and say position 1 they all go into the same position position 2 they all go into the same position position 3 they all go into the same position um a hip grip. You know that? You know what I mean. There's no question. We don't need to talk about how. We've done that. So if I say forward, 15, left, bump, 20, knee walk, push, someone that's been through the curriculum knows exactly what that means. They know what conditions that they would apply this style of flowing and moving in. They would know why they're flowing and moving, when to flow and move, and they'd have the methodologies that of how, and that's, I mean, that's how everybody else does it. But we just say, hey, fuck it, just wing it. Show up, show a couple of things. I, I think it's important to say, and then, and then any other questions I'm happy to answer, but I, I think it's really important to say that I've been at conferences 
with exactly what you said early, Grant, which is you run into somebody and they go, oh, we'll figure it out. But they, they must be really fucking good. Because I know world-class, I know Olympians that don't just figure it out. And judging by their caliber of physique and their ability to articulate anything, really, I wouldn't say they're Olympic quality as a parallel. Olympians don't just figure it out. They, they, they have got it figured out before it ever hits there. The SEAL teams have it figured out before it ever hits there. They don't show up to an opportunity to practice and figure out what they're going to do and how they're going to do it on a napkin 15 minutes before they're set to set up. That is the most disrespectful, unprofessional thing that a supposed professional educator can do. It's a failure of character. Because what they're saying is they're so fucking badass that people are showing up for them and not showing up for the material. And I think that comes back to the first step, which it is not about us. It is about the material. I, you know, I am the, my wife likes to joke. I am the most extroverted hermit there is. I don't want to be the, whatever recognition that I have, I fundamentally don't care about. What I care about is my skill set works, that people get it and they like it and they work on it and it's giving them a medium of exchange and people are making fires. I don't care. Dan Gable doesn't give a shit that it's called a Gable grip, but it's called a Gable grip for a reason. What he cares about is winning. That's how I approach it. And when I came in, I was a little bit older and I'd already done some stuff and I just applied all of that in. So when those new people come in, before we beat them down and get them into submission, maybe we should figure out what lens they put all this data through. And maybe they can bring something to the table that makes our lens uh, less colored and we're able to look at the whole environment with better total vision. So, I mean, I, I, it, it pains me. I mean, Grant, when, because we, we've talked about that before and I've had, I've heard similar things. What are you talking about? You're going on in about an hour. What are you talking about? I don't know. I'm putting all the slides together. I'm finishing up my pro. What? Like, <laughs> fuck. really? That, that like, wow. Huh? I just, nobody likes me well enough for that to be the reason they show up. <laughs> You know, and it's really egotistical to think anybody does. Uh, the material is what they're there for. And when that day comes that, that you know, it's a cult of personality. And I, it's just not that guy. So, um, and I'm uncomfortable with it as an industry because it isn't professional. So. I think there's a, a lot there, man. Uh, thank you so much for uh, all your information on that. We have uh, – Anybody that wants some more information, I'm sure we'll have uh, Aaron back. We have quite a few questions to go in depth on from, from what he hit on here. Aaron, uh, knocked it out of the ballpark, man. We, we really wanted insight on, on, on your teaching methodology, and I think you uh, exceeded all our expectations. I know there's probably going to be a lot of people out here that are uh, listening that are going to go buy books and read up on all these guys you mentioned and their different methods of instructions. Um, yeah, and I think I think the big thing is is you, you, there's a lot of the stuff you don't have to get. I appreciate those are kind words. I appreciate that. Uh, and it's hard in a in a format like this to go into real technical 
the real technical aspects of it, but those, I, I do have those. Um, but I think the big thing is, right, is that the fire service needs to be accountable for the fire service. We as an industry need to quit saying they should, they should, they should. We should. We should. We should demand that our training model follows a real. We should look for certifications less and competency more. And we should actually create the environment that we say. We should not talk on the books and faces and put out memes. We should do work and we should talk to each other. And what we find out is that we're more similar. We're letting for-profit industry get in the way of public. There's profit and ambiguity. And if we wrote our books and we wrote them right and we wrote them and then we, we did what the military does, which we annotated it and we changed it. We do what the NFL does. They annotate it and they change it. They don't throw out their old playbook. They still have it. And they have the reasons that they change. And if we approach it with that kind of thing, with the number of people that we have that give a shit, it's unbelievable what we could become. And I think that the other thing to remember is all this information is out there and it's accessible. But what it takes is the first step is I don't know everything. And this is and people that are way smarter than me have been figuring it out for a long time. So maybe we should get really good with it. And the end, you know, is that for me is that this is, this is my, I mean, the, the engine work is important to me clearly, and I will continue to do it. But for me, um, I'm at a point in my life when the end is closer than the beginning. And there's other stuff I have to do in this world. I have other things to accomplish before, before I've worn myself out. And this is my final, this, I, this, I have said the paragraph that I have to say, which is here's some stuff on engine and here's some stuff on coaching and training and methodologies and approach. And neither of them are finished, but, um, you know, for, I mean, you guys definitely fall into this category of comrades, comrades in arms that get it, people that I like, that I trust, that I think are doing things for the right reasons. Um, so like we need to, do, it needs to change. And so my final sentence, when I put the final period on the last thing I'm going to say in these paragraphs, it's going to be, this is how the fire service should be practicing. Here is the model. And this is the example that I use because I'm an engine guy. But this is the model. Don't try to be smarter, be better. The ethos of the fire service is winning. That's what we should be focusing on. Dan Gable doesn't give a shit whether it's called a Gable grip because he wants to win. He doesn't care what you call it. As long as it works, it's it's doable. So I think we should be less worried about our stamp and our personal investment as an industry and more focused on what it is we're trying to transmit. And for me personally, and I think I'm a throw in the other direction, maybe in some cases, you know, too far, but less cyber and more sweat. And just keep doing it. And that will be the vehicle of growth. 
right? People will say, I went to this class. I don't have an internet presence. I'm booking into 20. That's not because um, of a good, a good advertising scheme. <laughs> I would be the, actually the opposite. So if, if you said good and you just flipped to the page, the antithesis of this good advertising scheme is what Fields is doing. I, I don't just, we need to do it, man. And then that, that, that all ties into that humility aspect, which is, hmm, here's the problem. Let's articulate the problem. Um, I know this has gone long, but let me leave you with one thing. Uh, I think this sums it up with language. And some of you have heard me talk about this. If you don't have a word for it, it doesn't exist. Um, the Chinese 2,500 years ago in their military doctrines wrote in that the, the way that you conquer a civilization is you get your, your feet, and they didn't say it quite this way, but you, get, you stand on them, and then you have them um, speak Chinese. Within three generations, if they're speaking Chinese, they're culturally Chinese. So the co-option of language and the creation of language changes your cultural and your worldview. I didn't know what electromagnetic cutoff valve was. I didn't even realize it came off of the 71 Super Beetle carburetor because my Plymouth Valiant carburetor that I was basing it off of didn't have an electromagnetic cutoff valve. So it was just something that was stuck off the side of the carburetor. I didn't even know what it was for. I ignored it. I went to those things that are the most familiar. So the color blue is the last primary color um, for human beings that they exist, that, that they define independently. Meaning all the other colors they had words for. The Egyptians, according to anthropologists, Egyptians were the first ones to code that blue is not a shade of green, nor is it a shade of red. Homer refers to Caesar Burgundy, for example. Um, the Egyptians were the first ones. So they, I took a test that they had given to, and I don't recall if they were from Papua New Guinea, Peru, or both. But I took it because I'm big into linguistics. I took a test that some other first world people took. And there were 16 color swatches on this page. And they were all different shades of green. And they said, which one's not green? And tell me what you call it. And quickly, because I had shade, I mean, I saw the deviation in shades and blah, blah, blah. And I go through and I hit aquamarine. I'm like, this is aquamarine. This one's different. It's blue. So they give that test to the people that were pre-modern living in the Stone Age. They filter through and they're naming off every single shade of green. And when they get to aquamarine, they go, uh, this one's different, but we don't really have a name for it because there's nothing that's a threat that's blue. We don't have a name for it. So the second half of the test was they gave me 16 color swatches, all green, all the same green except one, which was so subtly deviant, it deviated so subtly that it took me three minutes and eight seconds to distinguish that this shade of green was different than the other ones, which were all the same. Everyone in the first world took well over a, a minute. I wasn't the slowest. 
the pre-modern man looked at it went and as quickly as i had seen aquamarine and we'd seen aquamarine they recognized the green was different and they all had a name for it because the difference in that green from the other green is that's the color of the snake that imitates the leaf and if i can't transmit that information and don't have a word for it then my brain doesn't classify it and if i can't classify it i can't pass it on and if i'm not classifying it i may not even see it so that's a that's pretty cool the reason i recognize aquamarine is because i love all people have no place for hate in my life except when it comes to yuppies and aquamarine is a yuppie color so when i see aquamarine i recognize the same threat that the pre-modern guy saw with the different shade of green. And, um, and I know that when I see aquamarine, a crate and barrel is near. Because the crate and barrel, that's the sign of cultural collapse. When crate and barrel moves into your neighborhood, you know that all culture that was there before is gonna be stripped away in favor of strip malls and, uh, and, and consensus. So anyway, that's the, <laughs> that's the, the piece, just, uh, you know, really focus on uh, one crate and barrel is the sign of the Western fall of Western civilization. And two, that um, words start your training with defining your terms and always include what we're doing, why we're doing it, when we would do it, and then how do we do it in that order in everything, whether it a drill or a skill. So, yeah. Well, great. Thanks again, Aaron. Good, awesome. Uh, yeah, sounds like thanks, we, won't be have, we won't be having Crate and Barrel as a sponsor anytime soon, but I think we're all plenty okay <laughs> with that shit. Um, really appreciate it, man. Kyle, if you had Crate and Barrel as your sponsor, <laughs> we could go get manicures and talk about our feelings. Yeah, that would never happen in the first place. I don't think any of us would ever want that. So uh, we're not too nope. fancy. Our wives maybe, but not us. That's for sure. Culture, your culture stripped away like a South African copper mine. Just no more culture. Now it's just every, everything like everything is the same. Boy, that's exciting. That's why I live in a small yeah. town with uh, no chain stores at all. So it's kind of nice to have that. Um, so again, Aaron, thank you. I know uh, Grant and, and Andrew are uh, happy to have you on. It, it's been a treat. Hopefully the guys listening can break out their dictionaries and uh, encyclopedias and all that stuff and look up some of the stuff that Aaron hit on and uh, gain some uh, insight into their training programs. So with that, we'll wrap up uh, episode four of the Journeyman Firefighter Podcast. Uh, thanks a lot for listening, guys.